And apologies for my exuberant pouring, if anyone noticed that there. It's a warm evening. If you're feeling uh, a bit dozy, don't worry, you're in good company. Let's gird up the loins of our minds. We've got a tough passage to look at this evening. We're carrying on our series in Ezekiel, and we find ourselves in chapters 8 to 9 this evening. And if you're here visiting us, uh, it's wonderful to see you. Or if you're a regular member of St. Peter's, and this is your first evening as you look at Ezekiel, I recommend going online or uh, our podcast on iTunes and listen to the first sermon we had in Ezekiel. There you'll find a lot of the historical background about what's going on. But what's essential for us to know this evening is that in the year 597 BC, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem and took off most of the people. But everyone thought that if the city stood, if the temple in the city stood, God was with his people. He had promised to be their God and they his people. And then the temple, his glory dwelt. He would never leave us, they thought. When we get to chapter 8, things begin to look not so certain. In chapter 8, months have passed since Ezekiel's woes we saw last week. 14 months have passed since that first vision from chapter 1, where we found him in the Kibar Canal. And last week, if we remember thinking back, we found Ezekiel lying on his side, telling messages of judgment to come, and God was going to shoot to destroy. Shoot to destroy his temple and his people. Where is God's glory going to be? That's the big question which runs throughout the book. Where is God's glory going to be? And in chapters 8 to 11, this week and next week, we find ourselves in one vision. One vision where Ezekiel is shown by God a vision of where his glory is going to leave Jerusalem. So let's join Ezekiel in chapter 8. If you've got a church Bible, we're on page 835. And let's join him as he meets, chatting to some of the elders of Judah. Perhaps they're seeking some good news after months of woe, but are about to be disappointed. Let me read for us Ezekiel chapter 8 and chapter 9, and then pray. In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes the jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in a vision I'd seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate, I saw this idol of jealousy. 
And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel. Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hands and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at a shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw a woman sitting there mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do these detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard them call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of pardon me. Now the glory of the God of Israel went from above the cherubim where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing kit at his side, and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city, and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing... And I was left alone. I fell face down, crying out, Ah, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? 
He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. These are heavy things. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your words we know you. What you have written here are are heavy things for us to grasp. Help us to feel the weight of them this evening. Incline our hearts to it, we ask. Through this, may we be conformed ever more to the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us even to ask to understand your words by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Three Ps for us this evening. The problem, the punishment, and the promise. Let's look at the problem here in Ezekiel. The problem of God's glory offended. Once known at the start of chapter 2 in verse 2, it's the same person we saw in chapter 1, the same person from the heavenly vision. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there, up his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. If you want to keep one finger then, turn back to 127, or I'll read it for us, which says, I saw that from what happened to be his waist up, looks like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Think back a few weeks to that epic chapter at the start of Ezekiel we looked at, and that incredible description of the likeness of the appearance of God. Here we've got this same heavenly man giving Ezekiel a guided tour of the temple. And we see it starts, he's, he's got some sort of vision. I don't really know what's going on, but the way it's described in my head is sort of like Google Maps. I've been in Google Maps for, with Street View, with the little yellow man you pick up by the hair and his legs kicking. And Ezekiel's transported from Babylon over to Jerusalem, transported to the temple. And have a look at the state of the temple at the end of verse 3. The place of worship to the one true God has become a place of worship to a pagan God. Before we embark on this guided tour we're going to go on, I wonder if you've ever been on a guided tour before. Perhaps you've been on holiday somewhere, you've been to a museum or historical building, and you've got the headphones on, and you go to one, one exhibit, and it tells you description, description of it, and then you hear the voice, please move on to exhibit number four. And you go to the same thing, and you read about it, and it's amazing, and you go, wow, it's great to be on holiday. And then the voice comes again, please move on to exhibit number five, and so on and so forth. Here we've got... A guided tour of the temple, but slightly different. The heavenly man on this tour shows Ezekiel four scenes, four 
exhibits. And at the end of each, he doesn't say, please move on to exhibit so-and-so. Have a look at that repeated phrase in verse 6 and 13 and 15. The end of each tour, he goes, but you will see things that are even more detestable. After each scene, things get worse and worse and worse and worse. So let's make our way through these four scenes and see what's happening. Have a look at the first one. The people worship the image of jealousy. In our first stop on the tour, we're taken to the north gate, and here we find an idol of jealousy. Commentators like spend a lot of time discussing how it could be an Asherah pole and all the disgusting things involved in worshipping this king like God. What matters really is not what it is. Not really. It is important, but it's not the main thing here. The main thing here, I think, is how it made God feel. Have a look at how it's described. The idol that provoked jealousy. So how would you end this sentence? God is. How would your friends perhaps answer that sentence? God is. Perhaps I think God is love. God is light. The Presbyterians amongst us instinctively go, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, changeable, and changeable as being, goodness, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, obviously. But jealous. God is jealous. How can God possibly be jealous? See, our view of jealousy quite often is warped. It's often a negative thing. We see something somebody else wants, a trinket, really, or we see somebody else and want to control them, and we are jealous of them. But here God's jealousy is the only right response because he loves his people. Think of it like this. Think of a husband and wife, and one of them starts sleeping with somebody else. Would the other spouse not be jealous? It's not a petty thing for them to be jealous. It's not a childish thing for them to be jealous. They're jealous because they love them. They made promises to be together. They've committed to be with one another. And so when God's people sleep around with false gods, the promise has been broken, and he's jealous. See, this is what idolatry is. It's, it's spiritual adultery. God had called this people his own. He had birthed this new nation, taught them to walk, taught them how to live. He'd been faithful to them. He had given them all that they have. And God has been treated with utter contempt by them and placed alongside a block of wood. See, that's what's been happening in God's temple. But think that's bad. You'll see things that are even more detestable. Have a look at verses 7 to 30, where we see the elders worshipping the gods of Egypt. You find Ezekiel digging into a wall. I imagine this perhaps he'd been to uh, York or 
if you're in Northumbria, like me, Berwick, a big wall around the city, around the town, where there's lots of rooms inside and tunnels through, and Ezekiel's digging into this. And here, hiding away, are the elders, the leaders in Jerusalem. Have a look at verse 10 to 11 and see what it is they're doing. Publicly, they're saying, yes, we follow Yahweh. He is God. But privately, they're offering up what was for God to the gods of Egypt. The description here is the same as that of the gods of Egypt in Deuteronomy 4. But notice somebody's mentioned here, Jazaniah in verse 11. Who's he? We don't really know. But his dad, though, we know him. Jazaniah, son of Shaphan. He was there when the book of Deuteronomy was rediscovered. He was there when they helped bring about reformation in Israel. And these elders are the people who should have known better. And Jazaniah, of all people, should especially have known better. See, coming from, from good stock, if you like, from a good Christian bloodline, having good biblical knowledge, that isn't an excuse that God will overlook some sin. In fact, it's the opposite. That you should know better. But why are they doing this? Why are they saying one thing in public, hiding away, doing something else in private? Have a look at verse 12. Because they don't really believe that Yahweh is helping them. So they think, let's try something else. They think God has abandoned them, but in fact, they are the ones abandoning God, pushing him away. Think this is bad. You will see things that are even more detestable. Turn over the page and look at verses 14 and 15, where we find the woman worshipping a god of Babylon. Ezekiel's brought back to the north gate of the temple in verse 14, and he sees a group of women weeping for a god called Tammuz. Who was he? Well, he was uh, a Babylonian deity who died, and they believed that he could be resurrected by them weeping and mourning over him. That's what these women are doing here. And we see here, this this idolatry has infected every corner of society. Rather than trust and worship the living God, they would rather weep and mourn over a dead God. Think this is bad. You will see things that are even more detestable. Have a look at the next few verses where we find the men worshipping the sun. The heavenly man takes Ezekiel to the final exhibit on the two in verse 16. And here we find, well, they're priests, but not acting like priests. So Ezekiel calls them simply men, and they have turned their backs to God. Turned their backs in the place, in the temple that was the place of repentance, the place of thanksgiving. And there is a public display of the spiritual leaders literally showing their backsides to God. I'm rejecting him. I'm bowing down to the sun. All while pretending to be faithful, while pretending to worship the God of Israel. And yet God sees their hearts. He exposes the rotten core of Israel's idolatrous heart. Perhaps you're here and you're thinking... Well, what they're doing, it's not really hurting, hurting anyone else, is it? It's all consensual. 
What's really wrong with what these people are doing? It's their, it's their choice to do it. Perhaps you're thinking, is this really the worst thing of everything going on in Jerusalem? Is this really the worst thing going on? Surely there are worse things going on in the city. Well, God doesn't show Ezekiel the horrendous acts of violence, the, the bloodshed that are taking place. He doesn't show him the, the rampant sexual immorality, nor does he show him the extreme oppression of the poor, all of which are prevalent in Jerusalem. He shows Ezekiel this and says, this is the worst crime. This is what I find more offensive, more horrendous than anything else going on. And why is that? Because it is a direct assault on God himself. Let's remember, God loved these people. Promised to dwell with them. He saved them and they have turned their back on him. They've given their affection, their time, their devotion to anything else apart from him. They've turned away from God. Turned away from his words. Abused his goodness, abused his patience, and they've all done it here, in his house, in the temple. But why? Why are they doing this? I mentioned it briefly. Have a look at this repeating phrase in verse 12 of chapter 8, and again in verse 9 of chapter 9, which says, They say the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He's not giving us what we need. He's not acting the way, the way we want him to act. So let's cover all bases. Let's try something else. But let's do so secretly. Now all this perhaps seems a million miles away from us in Dundee in 2018. What has this possibly got to do with us? Well, idolatry isn't simply bound to stone. In the New Testament, Paul writes the church in Colossae, and he says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. See, the way that idolatry plays out today isn't the same as it was for people in Ezekiel, but the heart behind it is still the same. There's still something which exists in our hearts and it still takes place in us and it still takes place in God's church. We may not worship Tammuz. We may not worship the sun. But we all worship something. If you think about the fact that this idolatry we, we commit is spiritual adultery... In what, what is adultery? It's when you put something in place of your spouse. Idolatry is when you put something else in the place of God, so worship that instead. So yes, you might come to church, you might appear to follow Jesus, but we can do all of this and still be an idolater. Imagine Ezekiel was given another guided tour, picked up a little man from Street View, and taken to Dundee in 2018. And God exposed the heart of his churches here. What would he see? He'd seen some churches, his name being dragged through multi-faith services, 
or to openly deny his word. Here we see churches where the ministers say that the Bible isn't really the word of God, it's just a myth. Or it is the word of God, and then it's so bent and twisted so it fits in with culture, and the word of God becomes barely recognizable. All while wearing the guise of Christianity, been doing so bowing to the idol of tolerance, the idol of relevance, the idol of contemporary culture, over and above listening to the one true God. We've got to point it out because it's an abomination. It's an abomination to the glory of God. As it was in the days of Ezekiel in our city, there are horrendous acts of violence, rampant sexual immorality, oppression of the poor and vulnerable, truly shocking things, but these are not as bad as the things which are an offence to the glory of God. We must also use this to examine our own hearts. See, what if God were to expose not just the inside of our churches, but inside of our hearts? See, idolatry is much more subtle than we'd imagine. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories constantly churning them out. See, what is it in our hearts that we are putting in place of God? Where have we placed our confidence in life, our treasure, our heart's desire? I follow Jesus, but I want life to be comfortable, so I won't give too much time or money for the work of the gospel, even though Jesus tells me to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow him. I follow Jesus, but my kids take priority over everything, even though Jesus tells me to forsake all others before following him. I follow Jesus, but I don't want to serve in a church for the sake of too much time, even though the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. I follow Jesus, but I've got to be the best at work. I've got to be the best at class, so others respect me, so others like me, so I have a name for myself. Even though Jesus tells me I'm known by the Father, that I'm loved by the Father, I follow Jesus, but when something gets me down, I look to social media for approval there. I turn to food and comfort there. I turn to drink to forget what's just happened. Even though Jesus tells me I can always come to him, and his grace will be sufficient. See, some of those things start out as good things. We've made them to be like God. We've said to Jesus that you aren't Lord. This person is. These things are. And often idolatry is saying to Jesus, you aren't Lord, I am. And that is a dangerous place to be, to live that unrepentant life, because God will not share his glory with another. The problem in Ezekiel 8 is God's glory offended. And then in 9, we see the punishment for those who defile God's glory. Remember, God's been patiently warning his people. This isn't a rash decision. It's not out of the blue. He's been warning them. But let me read for us from the end of chapter 18. Let me read all of chapter 9 again. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. 
I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard them call out in a loud voice, Bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing kits at his side, and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to others, Follow him through the city, and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down, crying out, Our sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them. But I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. Notice the end of verse 18. God won't hear the pleas of his apostate people. But nine one, we see no one's going to not hear the cry of God's judgment. His judgment is comprehensive in chapter 9 because the idolatry is comprehensive. Let's make no mistake, Jerusalem wasn't a lovely place. These are not lovely middle-class people getting on with life. It was detestable. It was a place where people killed their own children to worship other gods. If you'd been there and you worshipped Yahweh, you would have been mocked for it, ridiculed for it. They acted like a pagan nation, so God is going to treat them like a pagan nation. And he'll wipe the slate clean, just as he's done before. God does so in this vision with an angel death squad. A death squad you come in to the city and carry out this tsunami of slaughter beginning at the temple. And what do we do with this? We can't say, oh well, it's just a vision. It it didn't really happen. Because it did happen. Five years after this, the Babylonian army came in and did just this. But the point is, it's not Babylon who did it. God did it. And this might all seem harsh to us. But it's not unjust. See, we have to submit ourselves under the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. And this is what Ezekiel does in verse 8 of chapter 9. Ezekiel still believed what everyone else believed. His hope's still in Jerusalem. And he doesn't question God's decision, but he's left despairing by it. See, this is what God was going to do to his apostate people. What they have done 
will be brought upon them. See, because God is always all that he is, because he, he, he is good, he is also just, he will bring it about. See, God is not some, some weak politician, some weak celebrity who only speaks about how bad evil is. He isn't too afraid to call out that which is detestable. Nor is he powerless to stop that which is wrong. No, he does speak out and he will act. And his judgment is the only right response of his goodness to evil. And it's never out of the blue. This has come off the back of years of patient pleading. And we'll see later in Ezekiel that God didn't want to punish his people. He wants them to live. But if they want to behave like the world, like the world he will treat them like the world. And if you think chapter 9 is bad, and it is bad, even greater punishment is coming in chapter 10 when God will walk out from his people. See, this is what God did to his apostate people in the days of Ezekiel. What will God do to his apostate church today? And when will he do it? We see some apostate churches growing and that should be hard for us it should break our hearts judgment will come and we know it will come when the Lord Jesus returns at the end of the age and he will wage war against them with the sword of his mouth see there is punishment coming for all of those who defile the glory of God these are weighty chapters But I wonder if amongst chapter 9, amongst the punishment for those who defile God's glory, you notice the promise for those who care about God's glory. Who is this man in linen of verse 11? What is he commanded to do? Look back at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9. And before judgment came, he was sent out to all of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in Jerusalem, and to put a mark on their foreheads. We're reminded here again that salvation comes before judgment, although the two are together. Before God initiates judgment on his apostate people, he gives salvation to the faithful. I think all of us here should rightly be terrified by what we read of in these chapters. Some of us have particularly tender consciences and perhaps are questioning their salvation after reading this. See, God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for broken spirits, contrite hearts. Those who mourn and grieve over their sin. Looking at verse 4, does this verse describe you? Do you sigh and mourn over your sin? If you repent, if you are repentant, you're safe. God will protect you. All those who care and their children will be protected. I wonder if you notice a similarity with the Passover from Exodus 12 in the section here. It's not those who paint the blood of the innocent lamb on the doorpost who are saved, but all those who repent are saved and marked on their foreheads. 
is picked up by the Apostle John in Revelation, saturated by Scripture, as you reminds of this morning in chapter 14, verse 1 of Revelation, which says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. All those who repent bear the name of God on their foreheads. This is the New Testament work of salvation for all eternity. We bear the Savior's name. For that's the name that we are baptized to, isn't it? We're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the name of God that marks us as his own. And 600 years after this was written, Jesus died on a cross in Jerusalem in our place, bearing our name, killed for our idolatry, our spiritual adultery, so all of those who repent may bear instead his name. See, if, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, I wonder what you've made of all of this. See, God has been patient to you as he's been patient to me and everybody else in this room. And for all those who mourn over their sin and repent of it, salvation is offered to you. If not, as you've seen, judgment is coming. And you'll have no more excuses because God has been patient. So if that is you, I plead with you, turn to Christ, repent of your sin. Pastors like the ones you looked at tonight, they're hard, aren't they? They're terrifying at times. To be honest, in in my preparation, I've never been so emotional, I think, while preparing a sermon, because these are heavy things here. For those of us here who are Christians, pastors like this remind us that we are sinners. But they also remind us that we are safe and secure, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ when we repent of our sin and turn to him. Let me pray. My great God, you are the God of glory. You are the eternally glorious one and you will not share your glory with another. Father, forgive us for times when we have committed spiritual adultery against you. As we think upon Christ and our foolishness, may we see his beauty and to long for and to go after him. Our Father, we pray for your church in Scotland. We are sinful, foolish people. It's easy to point fingers at other people. We acknowledge that we are part of your church and we confess our sin before you. Restore your church, we ask.
Help us be a people who mourn and grieve over our sin, who do not take sin lightly. May we trust in your work, Lord Jesus, on the cross. Thank you that on the cross you bore our name, bearing the just wrath that we deserve. Thank you that we've been baptized into your name, finding salvation and safety in you. And as we're about to sing, Lord Jesus, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Amen. We're going to close by singing the song, Oh, for a closer walk with God, which Edge quoted one of the verses from there. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a constant heavenly calm, a light to shine upon the road leading to the Lamb. After song, please remain standing for our benediction.